Welcome to the Alberta Forage Industry Network Sustainable Forages webinar and podcast series. You might be asking, who is Alberta Forage Industry Network? The forage industry is significant in Alberta. According to the most recent census, there are over 28.8 million acres of forage land in Alberta. Up until 2002, the Alberta Forage Council represented the interests of the forage industry in Alberta. However, in 2002, the council merged with Applied Research Associations to become the Agriculture Research and Extension Council of Alberta. Erica has evolved to become a broader umbrella organization representing the whole agriculture industry in Alberta. Several consultations were held with all facets of the Alberta forage industry between the years 2007 and 2010 to see if there was an interest or need to have an organization representing the forages in Alberta. This resulted in the formation of the Alberta Forage Industry Network Society, or AFIN, in 2010. AFIN is directed and managed by a volunteer board of directors who are located across the province. For more information and contact information about the AFIN Board of Directors or how you can become a member of AFIN, please refer to the Contact Us section of the AFIN website at www.albertaforages.ca. Join us for a chat about the current drought situation in Alberta and the mental health impacts it can have on those facing difficult decisions and stresses. Program Director Linda Hunt from AgNo will join us to discuss strategies for calf-cow operations to deal with potential drought, including coping with the mental stresses that can arise. We'll explore solutions for challenges such as selling off part of a herd, purchasing expensive feed, and managing short and long-term financial stress caused by drought. This webinar is free to attend and will be posted on our website, YouTube channel, and all podcast platforms for you to listen to and share. We'll get rolling here at 7, 7.07. So uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Tamara Garson, and I'm a rancher here at Longview, Alberta, which is an hour-ish south of Calgary. Um, and I've had the privilege of being on the AFIN board through the Foothills Forage Grazing Association. And this webinar came about uh, when I was out checking our pastures. It got quite depressing quite quickly. Um, and I noticed that my mental health wasn't very good. And then when I was going to brandings and helping neighbors, I could see that everybody else was really bummed out and down in the down in the dumps. So I thought, you know, we need to all come together and chat and pull each other back up because uh, that's the best part about ranching is the community. So when I got thinking about that, I thought, okay, who are the people I would reach out to? And I instantly thought of the lovely people we have here tonight to talk. So one of the people that I thought of first was Doug Ray. And I met Doug through Foothills Forage. 
many years ago. And Doug's been ranching for quite a while and he has lots of insight. And I've asked him to, we've had chats before about drought and grazing. And I just thought it would be really awesome to share with everyone else. So we'll get Doug to go on. And if you have questions, you can put them in the chat or wait to the end and then we'll open it up for questions. So Doug, if you're not chewing on a piece of steak, you're up. Do you wanna, do you wanna just let people know who else is on so what what the evening might is going to progress like absolutely so we also have uh glenn and kelly hall who i've also come across through on foothills and they ranch just at natton there and then we have linda hunt who's with erica and she's going to talk on the mental health side of things and we have Grant Ostuka, and he's with Union Forge and also a producer. So we have lots of different insight and experience from different areas of the province. So it should be a very well-rounded discussion. So. Okay, with that, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off. And, and I think Tamara uh, was very insightful in recognizing the, the stress that's out there in the countryside given how dry we are and and this time around you know it's not nobody feels like we're the only ones everybody else is okay this drought is is from the border at least to Edmonton uh and beyond and uh so it's a big area and on and on our ranch at Iracana just northeast of Calgary it's you know a week ago it's about as drier than I can ever remember um you know we had pastures when it you're in the middle of June and you've now got less pastures at the end of the week than you had at the start of the week in terms of how much grass you have because it's literally drying up in front of you rather than growing it's uh, it's a big concern so so I think tonight we want to just just have a conversation and hopefully the audience will chime in and be very upfront with questions and thoughts um, on what they're dealing with. But I think uh, for me, um, it's important to have perspective. So, so on number one, we're not alone. It's a, it's, it's a big area. So there's lots of other people dealing with the same stresses that we all are. Um, and sometimes people look at their ranch as they identify with how many cows they have. And, and so if we're a 250 cow ranch, selling cows um, is an affront or, or a, to, to that identity that we're a 250 cow ranch. Um, and on our place, uh, my nephew, Tim and I, Tim's now essentially managing the ranch and I'm mentoring and supporting along with his dad. And uh, we value the grass more than the cattle. So we don't look at ourselves as, as so many head is, is what we identify with. We think our grass is our most important asset. So our reference point is, is how much capacity have we got to graze and then we'll use the cattle to address that capacity so um, we have destocked and we started this a year and a half ago um, 
by selling some red heifers. And then last June, we sold older red, older cows, older pears, because we were, we were very aware that we didn't have the moisture and weren't growing the grass to, to handle the normal stocking rate. So, so we are now on our ranch property. We're about one third of its, what we would think as its normal moisture stocking rate. So we've, we've cut our numbers. Now we've got cattle other places. The yearlings are all north where there's more moisture and we've got um, a liner load of cows out in Cochrane country where it's equally as dry, but, but hopefully uh, there'll be enough grass there to carry those cattle. So we've, we've addressed it two ways by unloading our own ranch to, to a large degree and finding grass somewhere else, hopefully in another rain shadow. So they're not dealing with exactly the same drought that we are. They're far enough away that, that there's an opportunity that they'll do better. And I think at this point, both of those places have maybe had more moisture than we have. So so um, that perspective of we're gonna try and protect our grass, we recognize our capacity is really about our grass. That's, that's what ident we identify as our ranch uh, rather than the number of cattle. And, and the other thing we've done over the years is, is to reduce our cow herd somewhat and, and have more yearlings recognizing that when we get short of grass, we can always sell yearlings at a full price into the feedlot industry and, and you know, destock that way without paying a, a penalty of trying to sell a pair, which, which might be devalued quite a bit at this point in time um, because everybody's short of grass. You gotta go a long ways to find somebody who thinks they've got extra so so by changing the the stocking stock we have the type of cattle we have and having some yearlings around it's another um, strategy that that we've employed to uh, address uh, when we get short of grass and and I guess we knew last fall that our that our soil was dry and we were gonna depend, be dependent on winter moisture and spring runoff and, and spring moisture. And so this is no surprise for us. We've been watching it very closely and we're trying to stay ahead of the game um, with, our, with the number of cattle we're asking our grass to feed. Um, and, and we have developed the tools to be pretty confident that we can assess how much grass we have and and that's a constantly changing thing you know we stockpiled a lot of grass last fall or last year so going into spring we had pastures we thought were in really good shape with a lot of carryover and we actually went to grass before the first of may earlier than ever um because we had stockpiled this grass and looked pretty good early on, but the longer May went along and the hotter May got, you know, we just realized we're getting tighter and tighter constantly. So we're, we're trying to monitor that and, and stay on top of it and be 
aggressive in in how we uh, handle that and and we don't identify ourselves by the number of cattle we have we uh, we're more concerned about how many cattle we can actually carry and and keep keep the grass functional because once you beat it down too hard too often then the recovery is slow and so now we've had some moisture we've had probably a couple inches of rain here in the last five days and uh you know that's enough to stop the bleeding hopefully and and get us to the next rain hopefully if we don't get another rain well we're going to green up but we're not really going to grow much tonnage so we aren't out of this thing yet but we have now we've got a little bit of lease on life we've got some time to get to the next rain and and so that's kind of how we look at it um and so then the other thing in our country we we have a lot of grain land around us and and if the drought is also affecting that grain land so there have been times in the in my 50-year career of doing this that you say to yourself well either we're going to get some rain and grow some grass or the neighbor's cash crops are going to be a fail fail to some degree and maybe we'll have an opportunity to capture some of that graze some of that and we've We've done that after hailstorms, and it's much harder to do in a drought because the way the crop insurance policy is, it it kind of encourages harvest of crops rather than foregoing that harvest um, and turning it into livestock feed. So, but but those conversations with neighbors need to start pretty quickly um, to say, you know, if 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 it looks like you're not going to get a combinable crop out of that, you know, is there a chance that we could, we could graze some cattle on it? And we would prefer to wrap electric fence around and haul water to, to the cost of cutting and baling and then, and then having to feed that that way. But um, I think that's, that's kind of the next level for us is, looking around and saying, where's the opportunity to get some more feed for our cattle um, that we can access and, and, and increase our feed resource. So um, I guess those are the ideas I'd put on the table. And we don't look at, at drought. We're not looking at ourselves as failures here. We're looking at ourselves as people trying hard and managing a tough situation so sometimes people say well you know they get as Tamara intimated it's pretty sobering and you get depressed about it but it's it's not this drought isn't an affront to who you are and and the quality of rancher you are it's it's a challenge to manage and I think you know we need to get our chin up and our eyes up and and hit it um, right on the nose and, and do everything we can to manage it rather than run from it or avoid or ignore it. So um, that'd be my two cents and I'll, uh, I'll let the halls weigh in from here. Hi everything, everyone. Um, 
We're Glenn and Kelly. We we are south of Calgary, about an hour. Um, we currently are actually looking out the window, enjoying some beautiful showers. So we're really, really happy to see that. Um, I just wanted to comment that we are exactly bang on, Doug. Uh, I have a 90-day fog written for today. And I don't know how many of you pay attention to that, but my grandpa taught me to do that. So um, I, I am a believer. We are believers. Um, we, we wanted to talk today a little bit about something that we can do and something that we do do. Um, a very dear friend of ours and a great mentor of ours once told us when you live in the banana belt where we live, um, you're either in a drought, coming out of a drought, or preparing for the next one. So Glenn and I have spent the last 40 years just about um, gathering some allies to teach us how to prepare for the next drought or how to survive the one we're in or how to um, celebrate the one we just got through. And the most important thing that we have learned is to look after our water. Um, we have ranch land uh, at the north end of the Porcupine Hills. Uh, and we are in the headwaters of Nanton Creek and Oxley Creek. The last six years have been challenging, um, to say the least, because not only has the grass um, uh, certainly felt the effects of dry and hot weather uh, from June to August, especially, but so has the water. Um, we rely on for the most part, we rely on free flowing springs. So these thermal springs are um, a true blessing. Um, our biggest spring in a good year will run 250 gallons a minute, which is an immense amount of water. Um, our, our purpose always is to look after that water, to use a little tiny bit of it, and then to let the rest send on to the, to the folks that are east of us in a healthy way. So we've learned with our partners, with our allies, with, uh, with people like Cows and Fish and Alberta Conservation Association, how to protect those water sources, how to develop our springs, how to ensure that we never water from the source and that we always offsite water. So we use, we lo we use lots of tools. Um, we use solar systems, we use lots of electric fences because we do our best to leave grass behind and always to protect the water sources and the water as it leaves our place. Um, I said to Glenn, I, I could tell a little story to everyone. Um, it was a story of learning and a, it's a story of hope. Um, probably about 25 years ago, uh, we, were, we were pretty dry and we were prepared to move to a quarter of, um, of rented land on the way to the ranch. Uh, there was, a, there was a, a good bit of grass, but the water was pretty shaky. Um, we had intended to be there for three weeks, um, but the water level in uh, the catch basin was, was looking more like we might be able to be there for a week. We had a yellow lab at the time, and we asked him to walk across it and he didn't get his belly wet. So that's how short of water we were.
But we had already fenced that cash basin off. We had a solar system and we had a trough. And by keeping the cattle out of that water, that water remained healthy and that water kept us there for three weeks on that grass. So it really struck to us, it's really struck home how important it is to keep that water healthy and, um, and the quantity also will, will pay off in the end. The pugs and hummocks that, that gather uh, when a cow was entered into that would have changed everything for us. So water is our key focus. Um, the grass, of course, is our key focus, um, but the soil beneath it is even most important because the soil is what we look after because every single drop of rain, if we can capture it and keep it in the ground, that's what we want to do. Um, to speak to some of the things that Doug did a little bit, we, we our grass, our water, and our soil are our capital. And that is the most important thing to us. Um, we are probably half um, as far as how many cows our ranch could handle. Um, and we're happy with that at this point in time because we have to leave, we wanna leave grass behind. The grass behind that we leave is a sunscreen for the soil and the happier the soil, the happier the ecosystem below the grass is, which is critical to us. Um, we have, uh, we destocked a little bit last year, the same as um, Doug spoke uh, with some older pears. And um, we're, we, we're, we started the year out actually pretty well during calving season. Uh, the fields that we call our sacrifice fields um, were full of, of stored grass for calving season and for pear, early pears. Um, they were wonderful to go to. Um, they depleted very, very quickly with the heat in May. Um, we did spread uh, a, quite a bit of manure on some of those pastures just to try to make sure the soil was never bare. And, um, and, have, and all cows are starting to move quickly now. We are moving um, across some of the fields. We're, we're, we're actually making the fields smaller and moving faster now to try to um, get past our breeding season, but more importantly, to give the the ranch where they will spend the summer a little bit more time um, because the ranch, the elevation at the ranch is, is a mile high and the grass is always slower up there, um, but it's also cooler up there. So we're actually leaving on Thursday with uh, a majority of the herd and we're going to be very excited to be there. The grass is not stirrup high but we know that we have grass for those cows when we get there. And most importantly, we know we have good, good water. clean, clear water. Um, last, last Friday, um, the showers started in our area. And I heard someone say that if you lived in the right place, you got some. Um, the community here was, it was pretty tough because some people were getting two inches and some people were getting minus two. Um, on Wednesday last week, we got a beautiful general shower that everybody did finally receive. So the competition phase is now over. Um, we have 
stopped. As Doug said, the bleeding has stopped a little bit. Um, a lot of the later seeded crops are looking pretty shaky. Um, the hay crops on our land are being grazed because um, it's, it is too late in our country to bale, um, but it's also saving us time in the hills where we will be going with our cows. So I guess I would just end by saying I, I, we are not on fire. We are not being flooded. Sorry. And we're very grateful for the rain that is currently coming down. We're on our way to three inches. And um, we have prepared ourselves for yet one more hot year. And I'm, I'm grateful for all of you and grateful for um, everyone that is attending tonight and in the same boat as all of us. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Kelly, that uh, both you and Doug really hit home for me. And I am so grateful to have access to, like you said, the choir and to have that. Cause I, I just think it brings everybody up and you can learn a few things and it's just, it's really good. Um, but we also have uh, Linda Hunt who can tell us a few things as well. And I'm very excited to hear from you, Linda. So you can take her away. Thanks. So um, just a little bit more of an introduction. My name is Linda Hunt and I do work for Erica, but I'm the director of the Agno Farm Business or Farm Mental Health Network. But I'm also an agrologist um, with rangeland and animal production from the U of A. I grew up south of Lethbridge on a mixed farm and the U of A was about learning Latin names for all the things I already knew what they were and how to manage them. So I have um, more than 25 years experience grazing in Alberta, all over Alberta, actually. I've worked in all parts of Alberta and rangelands and pasture systems and in West um, Central Saskatchewan as well. So this topic is near and dear to my heart <laughs> because I've dealt with um, drought my whole life. And when I grew up, we had a drought year uh, three and five. So we were always preparing for the next drought. So I really appreciated uh, what Doug and uh, what Kelly both had to say about drought management, they hit all of the things that you do to manage drought. And they even talked to some of the strategies that we use as farmers to cope with things that we can't uh, change, like weather and drought. So um, planning is the biggest one. There's actually some research done in um, Australia where they had four years of drought in a row. So all the farmers that they were following for that research had come to one financial point within those four years where they were wondering how they were going to even feed their families. So I can't imagine, I've never had to do four years of drought, I've done two consecutive years of drought, but four, to me that's incredible amount of stress those people are under. And what they found was that most farmers actually have really good coping and skills for managing things that are out of our control, because believe it or not, so many of the things that we deal with are completely out of our control. And so we naturally um, learn from our, our parents and our grandparents how these coping strategies and planning is the biggest one that we use. So planning for that next drought. If you um, graze on the prairies, then it's not about if there's gonna be a drought, but when. 
So how do we do that? Well, we manage our soil and our water and our grass so that we have options when it's dry, that those uh, systems are, are performing at their maximum capacity, and that we have all the tools that we can use to get ourselves through um, those dry conditions and those um, tricky situations. The thing about um, drought and planning for drought is that, um, like Doug says, it's not your fault. And a lot of us, I, me included, I uh, when I look at my pastures and I think, what are the neighbors thinking when I have them full of scentless camel? Because I did funny things and tried something new and it didn't quite work out, right? So like there's things that you do all the time and the ways that we are managing our land that has those, those impacts and people see it. But drought is one of those things that's never your fault. And it's something that we can't, um, feel like we're a failure. One of the things I've noticed in a lot of our extension um, uh, documents and activities that we do about preparing for the next drought is it kind of makes it sound like um, there's a way of managing your farm and your operation so that you're not impacted by drought. And that simply is just not the case. Um, like Doug says, it's hard for everybody, uh, even the most experienced grazers suffer <laughs> in a drought. It's hard to know when to pull the plug, when to sell, um, how to sell, which ones to sell, uh, when to stockpile and not stockpile. And a um, little discussion we were having before everybody joined us was how sometimes it's just a gut feeling and you go with it and it was great and it worked. And the next time the gut feeling and, and it flops. It's just one of those things that we deal with as farmers all the time. But planning ahead really helps um, having that plan for myself on my own farm um, whenever I'm buying animals I'm already sorting them into that's the $200 bale cow that I'm going to keep and the rest of them are the ones that are going to go and every time I I round up my cows and one of them kicks at me or um, aggravates me they get moved in categories a little bit and uh, but when it comes to the dry season then I can I have those decisions already made and so it's not as stressful to decide what to do because I've already kind of decided those things ahead of time. Um, there's things that um, I like to do um, financially when I'm thinking about drought too. I like to think about every time I take out a loan or decide to go for a uh, different kind of financing, I'm like, but in a dry year, how is this going to impact me? And what is my, my um, strategy for getting through that? And so it's all of that preparing and making those decisions ahead of time. Um, thinking those through ahead of time really helps when you're in, in the moment. Um, I don't know if there's anything more I can say compared to Doug and Kelly. They had such great strategies. I loved um, the stockpiling your grass um, ahead of time. I know if it's a dry fall, I always stockpile thinking about what is the spring going to be like. And I like to bring my cattle in to the pasture at about the same time every year. And so having that stockpile really helps me in the fall. Um, grazing the cows and the yearlings, that's a strategy that we used um, when I was growing up. That was a common strategy for us. We always had that pile of yearlings that could go right into the feedlot. Um, and you don't lose as much as, like Doug says, as you can on your pears when it's a dry season. Um, reducing grazing pressure for spring grazing. Um, always having temporary fences and uh, water tanks 
available for those dry seasons because it's amazing how much grazing I can get out of sloughs when my neighbors are um, in a dry year. I can talk my neighbors into it. And uh, I don't know, I live in this neighborhood where there's a lot of cows that get out and mine never do. So my neighbors are pretty happy with me coming in and putting up some temporary fences. And that's the other piece of coping in dry season is get friendly with your neighbors. Like get to know the people around you and have relationship with them because when things are tough, people come together and that's where you're gonna have that guy that even though um, crop insurance wants him to, uh, to wait and harvest or he's willing to give it to you. Um, that happened a few times last year, actually, with some producers. I know they had such good relationship with their farm, with their neighbors on, and they got green feed <laughs> instead of him getting his crop insurance. So I don't know, there might've been something else going on there, but I thought that was a pretty amazing, um, amazing thing for a neighbor to do for another neighbor. So get neighborly. Um, the soil health strategies that Kelly talked about, always having that's part of that resiliency and being able to use the maximum water use efficiency of everything that you do get. When I was a kid, that one-tenth every two weeks actually keeps the grass just a little bit and just going. And it always amazes me how much um, just a little bit often or a little bit not so often can actually keep um, a grazing system going. But again, the flexibility of being able to adjust the size of your paddock to move things faster or slower based on the conditions, having that temporary fencing and those water troughs and, and tanks available so that you can make those adjustments really helps in a dry season. So our um, the work I do at Agno is really about um, connecting farmers with mental health um, services and opportunities um, access is a big problem for farmers in most rural communities. So we're looking at ways that we can increase access to services and how people get the support when they actually need it. So um, if you go on our website, which is agno.ca, there's a get support page and there's links to different services that we have or have found that work for farmers. And we also have a, a network of Agno Therapy Network, which is therapists that understand farming. Some of them are farmers themselves. Some came from a farm. Some have just been working in farming communities. But they all understand farming. And if that's something that um, you need or you're looking for, you can find it through the Agno Initiative. But Agno is more than just trying to connect people. It's also about identifying what kind of stressors are happening in the community and actually taking actionable steps to deal with them. So a couple of our um, initiatives right now and some of the research that we're doing is around depopulation and um, the impact of that on farmers and how can we support people through that process and maybe make the process a little bit more compassionate. If you know anybody that's gone through the BSC years and all the depopulations that happened, you kind of understand the kind of trauma that people go through when that kind of stuff happens. Um, and we also look on farm transition. So. Um, that's a little bit about me and my observations and contribution to this, if there's any questions or people want to ask. Oh my goodness, Linda, that was absolutely wonderful. Um, I'm really, really glad you talked more about the website that you have. Um, I really hope people feel comfortable in going to that and using that. 
um, I'm just blown away by all the information from everybody here. And I, I don't know about everyone else, but I think it's really awesome when you can just, you know, maybe you're getting a little worried about something and you go, whoa, back up. I have all these tools that I can access. I have all these people I can reach out to. And you just pick yourself up and you keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I love that about this community. And I think it's wonderful. So thank you. And we have one more uh, that probably needs no introduction, but uh, Grant has, has many years in our industry and I really, I really don't think he needs any introduction because he's just one, he's just Grant. So Grant, you take it away. Well, there's two of us tonight, so I don't oh. know what that means. So <laughs> I'll just flip this up. Uh, I think the biggest thing we're looking at is that Linda did such an excellent job and I was really pleased Tamara pulled this together. Um, the fact is options. And uh, through all of it, I like having my grazing records because I know then I've got something to work from. And some of the science behind it reflects the fact that if we're diminished in rain, it is a reflection of a few things. One of them is how the species are going to tolerate it. Are the avoiders, are they going to, in fact, uh, head out and start coming at you faster? And then you have to manipulate your own situation. So as Doug likes to say, stick handling is so true of drought situations or grazing for that matter. And the communities that we have through Erica, the Forge and Applied Research Associations, and I know with uh, one of our people on the line, Larry Wagner, who's past chair of the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association, many peers that are only a phone call away to ask a question of. And uh, you almost always get a heartfelt answer from anybody. Um, so that is something I have used over the years. Um, and today, certainly, I was talking to one of my good friends, Brian Luce, who's a certified holistic educator and uh, farms up in the Crestomere area. And what his comment was, make sure you have a real line in the sand. And that line in the sand you have, if it's June 15th, if it's June 10th, how much rain, what date? Because the science behind it does support the fact that yields drop based on moisture deficiency. Um, one of the climatologists at Alberta Agriculture, Dr. Ralph Wright, had said to me, Grant, you remember all the years of your growing up and the fact that the 1900s to 2000s were some of the wettest years you'll see. Um, if you go back and look at some of the things that uh, Dr. Peter Suchin out of Regina found with the tree in the crow's nest pass, there's a reason Pellister made the comments he made about Southern Saskatchewan, Southern Alberta, and why Lewis and Carker Thompson thought life was good. If you've got 48 drought years, and that's what I think the tree experienced in the crow's nest pass, you know that you have to plan for it, like Kelly and Glenn were talking about, like Doug was talking about. And the one thing I'm finding more and more in the farming community or in the community and forages is I do have people to count on, but at the same time, I wanna take control back as much as I can myself. And with that, all these efforts we've had 
And uh, Linda talked about temporary fence. Kelly was talking about moving faster and uh, uh, smaller areas. The idea is control. And so taking control of the situation, we've got landscapes that are a riparian area. Um, and you know what? Doesn't get grazed very often. And when it's really dry, um, lo and behold, you're not going to be damaging it to any great extent. So getting the animals in there, maybe even supplementing. I made a phone call uh, two weeks ago and uh, looked into the price of pellets. And lo and behold, they were 20% lower than they were last fall for me, for mill run, wheat mids. And knowing that I can get them just is one of those things that gives me some comfort. And I've got till the end of July to commit on that. So I said, well, I'll wait for the rain if I've got till then. So again, talking about relationships with neighbors, um, as Linda talked about, or companies that you deal with, people that they tell me, if we wrote you down in the books, we'll follow through and commit to delivering on you and we're not going to change it. So I deal with people I can trust for the most part or else I'm going to pre-buy and do something there. But the idea of a lot of it is taking control back and with control and Brian Luce's comment, line in the sand being very crucial. I saw a drought presentation last spring done by um, now the chair of the, I should say farming forward, I guess, West Central Forage Association, Rod Nickel, who's another mentor of, of mine. So many producers are mentors to me and I steal their ideas all the time. That's why I give them the credit. But Rod had it all laid out based on how much moisture, what dates, which groups of cattle were going to go. And you know, as Linda's comment about the cow that kicked her, um, as we know today, cow-calf pairs have dropped in price some, but I just sold, uh, you know, cows that lost calves, uh, a bull that uh, I wasn't going to use last week, and they're very good price. So taking advantage of some of those things and starting to tighten it down as you're going and remembering that we have to be our own insurers more than we were even in the past, I think, because there are fewer people in communities that are mixed farmers working together maybe is getting to be more of a challenge with the larger operations but certainly talking to them and, and letting that stage go making sure that you've got the the fencing the water systems in place so that you can draw on them and the frustration i have is that i can do a lot of things but i cannot take the pastures down the rangelands down in my area because they're the one thing that I have to count on and I will stockpile forage I carry more stockpiled because it is my drought insurance and when Lee Hart was doing an article a couple of years ago he said what are you going to do about drought and that that's two years ago so we're talking the same kind of scenario and I said well I'm going to leave more stockpiled and then a friend and I were talking and I said, well, I'm going to start feeding earlier. Um, I, I'm going to pre-buy some stuff if I can, because I'm getting more worried as it gets drier. And I know that the stockpile will be there for next year. It'll be snow insulation. The plants hardship on themselves is lesser. 
And to many people, they talk about plants going dormant. To be honest, I don't think science says they do. The cool season grasses, in fact, go into a slow rate of respiration and such, but they're still functioning. So the best job I can do at tucking them in for the winter, leaving those leaves on the plant so that the plant can draw on them, and that's what was happening this spring at our place, is the pasture started to come, and then you saw them start to fade, but they had enough leaf, leaf area on themselves to draw on, to keep alive their core points. And with that, we now had the ability for regrowth and the vigor of the plant determines how bad a moisture shortfall is. Dr. Llewellyn Mansky from North Dakota would say, if we're going to plan on it, presume 75% is normal look at the moisture shortfalls you're running into early in the year. If you feel that you've got 40% of normal, 75 minus 40 means 35% I'm left with. And that would be the adjustment in production downfall in his mind would be 35%. That is on a good pasture. The disadvantage and disappointment he shared is if it was a pasture in fair condition, not good or excellent, he said it's actually twice that. So when moisture shortfalls have the pastures like Doug was talking about earlier, they'll keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. And when they start to fade our best ones and earlier on the chat, we were chatting and Larry Wagner was sharing some of the past. He's had very little rain in Manitoba in his area, but of course, which ones are coming? And the stockpiled ones, the ones that had more leaf area, the ones that had more moisture deeper down, the newer haystands. And so we're looking at, again, managing for the options we've got, the strengths we've got, and we eat the elephant a bite at a time, but we've got to watch because at the same time, we got to make moves that are going to be preemptive and being made ahead of time and in not a way that's after the fact, after the pasture's been grazed down. We're still grazing fast. I was talking to uh, Nora Polovich and many of you know Nora from up at Manning. They're still grazing fast, but taking it lightly counting on the rain if we don't get the rain oh oh and i was i made the guess that i was going to get some rain i don't know if it was like kelly and keeping track of the fog but all said and done i thought you know i think we're going to get some rain i've got one group that i can sell they're being held back on dry lot they were until today and i put them out today but that was going to be the group to go replacements and at the same time i'm positioning all those pastures that were heading out that were strong because a pasture that's strong when it's heading out and such will regrow with more tillers a pasture that's weak will not be that respondent that fast and light grazing is something that well cared for pastures that have got multi-height growing points, low growing points, potential for good roots, 
And when I'm only taking a third or a quarter in that first pass, I'm leaving a fully intact root system because if I take greater than 50%, that's when I really stop the roots. And so right now I've been leaving plants with roots that are good. On my bale grazed ground, I have grazed some more severely, but they've got a lot of nutrients under them. And fertility does enhance water use efficiency. Work done in Southern Alberta many years ago uh, by Silver Smoliak and others showed that in fact, if you add some nitrogen, and it wasn't a lot, I believe it was around 40 pounds. So we're, we're talking 80 pounds maybe of N, of, of nitrogen, my apologies, about 40 of N. They had a 57% increase in productivity and he said it was he felt due to water use efficiency the plants grew roots down deeper to get the moisture when they put on phosphorus they only had an 11 percent increase in production and he attributed that to be water use efficiency improvement increase but 57 plus 11 was 129 when they were put together so the point is synergy and management and everything. The biodiversity, some of these off-calf programs, the higher legume pastures, um, and Dr. Surya Churi is on the call and uh, looking at my sandfoin out there, I, my legumes are drought avoiders. Um, they get me quality. They're adding nitrogen to the system for the grasses. And that's the pasture I'm on with a, a lot of my cattle right now is the higher legume pasture. And I'm moving fast on it and light because I'm counting on the legumes, giving it the nitrogen for it to come back. And I'm watching that June 21st date pretty long because I know that the majority, 78% of our growth occurs early. And whatever happens a little later in moisture is not the same. It is the April, May, June rains, according to Dr. Ralph Wright, the climatologist at Alberta Agriculture, at, that really dictate the year. And that's because it's all primed prior to the June 21st. Tamara, I'll pass it back to you. Thank you. That was awesome, Grant. I am really glad that this is recorded because I can see going back and listening to this and getting more and more information. So um, that is awesome. Um, I did want to ask you, Grant, if you could put your calculation of the moisture shortfalls on the pasture regarding the moisture in the plants in the chat, just so people can have that. Um, I thought that was a really, really good tool. And I also liked the idea of the grazing records because that gives you that line in the sand, like you said, that you can, okay, if we don't have X amount of rain by X day, then this is what we do. And that's how my brain likes to work is be ahead of the game. Um, so that was, that was really good. And if anybody has any questions, you can put them in the chat or you can unmute yourself and ask away. Um, if we don't have any right off the get go, um, I also, I'll just go back through my notes here. Um, I really liked how, Linda, how you talked about um, how your experience around the province was the same everywhere and how, you know, you made that call list as you were going through the year. And I know during calving, I was making notes like crazy. Um, if anything looked 
you know, not right. This was the list I would go to. Um, and I really like how you said that you made that list before the decision got tough. So I thought that was a really, really good point. Um, and Kelly, I really, really liked how you talked about take care of your water source. And I remember when we went down to your place on the foothills tour and seeing that firsthand with the fencing and the beaver dams and the quality of the water and how everything was filtering, that was, that was really, really good uh, point. And I also liked your, your story that you shared. I thought that was uh, very tangible. And I, Doug, I liked when you talked about, I think it was really important how you said to identify with the capacity of your ranch, not the number of the head on your ranch. Because I, I can see how people could get stuck on well, we're a 200 head ranch, we can't be less and we can't sell cows. And then you get kind of down the road and you get yourself in trouble. So I thought that was an excellent point. Um, I don't think we have any questions. Does anybody want to add anything else? Sure, I'll, I'll uh, it's stuck here, I'll chime in again. I think, I think it's, you know, if you're gonna, to have those people you can are comfortable to talk to and find the people who are who are glass half full proactive um, people that are thinking ahead if you're going to go hang out with the coffee crowd that are doom and gloom and everything's wrong with the world and it's all somebody else's fault you're not you're not going to get anywhere in those discussions and and you know they won't do your mental health or your your ability to adapt and and go forward any good so you know i like even if you're talking to your neighbor who doesn't have any more answers than you but he's trying and he's got this thought and that thought you know it's it's um i find those conversations are often very useful and supportive and and you never know where that nub of an idea is going to come from that will trigger something that that you know i've missed in my thinking or my my uh how i'm looking at things so you know go go to those people who will provide those positive conversations and uh and rely on those those neighbors don't spend a lot of time with the one who's pretty sure that everything's going to hell in the handbasket and most of it's somebody else's fault. You know, that, that line of thinking won't get you anywhere. So um, the other, the other thing I would put on the table is, you know, on our ranch um, last year for the first time ever, we went to a once over graze instead of uh, moving quickly, we slowed right down. And that came from, from Tim's observation on keeping track of keeping records that, that those paddocks that had the most carryover on them were giving us the most grazing the next year. So one way to get more carryover is to have a longer rest period. So I'm not certain that we're on the right path but but we're giving it a whirl and we'll see um but we 
So those paddocks we grazed first last year benefited from six inches of rain in June and had a lot of regrowth, had a lot of material there when we went into them this spring and and carried us in the early going. So um, I'd, I'd be interested if anybody else got any observations in that in that vein. Like Ryan Boyd in, in um, Manitoba is a Nuffield scholar who, who happened onto this kind of thinking in Florida, totally different growth dynamic than ours, but, but he's been playing around with this kind of a once over high impact, take a lot graze and then give it a full year's rest uh, as a way to, to up the capacity of his ranch in Manitoba. So I uh, wonder if anybody's got any comments about that idea. Ray Bannister in Montana, of course, was one of the people that um, was on a roadshow up through Canada, I think, with Dr. Fred Prevenza many years ago, and that was something he did. Um, and it was boom bust raise every two years. And with that, he had a lower milk production herd of Hereford cattle. Um, and uh, I'm not picking on the breed. It's just what he had, sorry. But the idea behind it was they were grazing very dramatically and get in there, get out. And with so doing, I think that follows what you're talking with Dr. Ed Bork sharing from some of the work from uh, the 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 trials he saw when he worked with holistic managers and others across the prairie it was the length of time for recovery that was given that was hugely important not the severity of graze per se um, because severity with the example you're giving is still being done with a lot of sense and sensibility about recovery and time and litter management and such and uh with that in mind i think it it follows pretty well i'm going to pass it over i think larry has got some good good words to say and he's got his hand up thank you uh i just wanted to make a mention that ryan has been doing that for three years there's a couple other producers that have been doing that we had uh jamie alonzo up Given a presentation here probably set five, six years ago, and I took that in. Uh, we implemented on a partial basis on our place. We do graze, do a total graze, and leave that land until next year once we do that. So it's grazed once. But that's usually done in our after July 1st and given a long rest period. Stuff we graze in our springtime or our fast growing season from April till now. We'll have leave that as uh, either fall stockpile or for next spring stockpile. And we'll break that up that way. Um, so that works that way. Last spring, I was on a conference call with drought management with uh, the southern states. And half our place is native land, half it's tame pastures. And I was kind of curious, but how do they know when they can go back on? When can you restock again once you're trying to break from the drought? And there is no set yes, no, there's everybody's got their own opinion. But one of the things that we talked about on that call was the fact that uh, I've always heard the grass, native grass is still dormant when it gets dry. 
And they said, no, that's not our experience. They said it all comes from seedlings again. So when last spring, when we got the monsoons come in in April and May, that's some of the land we stockpiles where we had the most seedlings on because we could see all the seedlings in a wall of different species coming up then. Uh, that's why we left it sit all season, just to let those seedlings get established for this year. So there's just a couple of points that I come across. I should pass it back. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. That's really interesting about the seedlings. I, I'm going to have to go out and check on that because that's, that's really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. The southern uh, rangelands in the southern states have more annuals in them just naturally. So um, it's not expected that it would happen quite as dramatically up here, but definitely there's more after a um, high impact or a drought, you'll get more of the seeds sprouting. But a lot of our um, native grasslands in the northern hemisphere don't like to go to seed, so the seed bank might not be so good. So it just depends on what you have in your seed bank. So be careful. You might end up with a whole bunch of uh, um, annual grasses, uh, downy bromes and that sort of thing. If my dad did that, that's what it would be. It'd be all downy brome the next year, so. Yeah, and I think we're, you know, we're on this once over graze, we're grazing uh, a pasture with, you know, I don't, it's probably not 50% green material and and majority of its carryover material this year because of the dry spring. So um, they're leaving, uh, they hammer it down, but there's, there's a lot of cover on the ground. We're not leaving bare ground. So, um, you know, the risk is that you compromise that root system and it, and it has to reestablish to some degree to take advantage of the moisture. So, you know, we're going to watch it pretty closely and and see how it performs. And and of course, it's not a perfect world. We can't predict what we're what we've got coming next week, even. So, um, but it is it is a strategy we're we're trying out. And part of it, you know, we've been moving cows every two or three days for 25 years on these pastures and we're part of the thinking is we need to be somewhat disruptive in some way in order to to uh you know break the rut that maybe doug has got himself into without realizing it and and look at possibilities that if if we challenge these pastures with a different grazing regime maybe will stimulate them uh, that's our hope in, in any case so it's we're learning can i ask anybody that's um, feeling free to talk about it is there anything that you would share that you have learned through by mistake like you know maybe don't do this because it didn't work for me in this situation Well, one of those for us, I'll, I'll just throw it in. We, we have, the, you know, these high legume metabrome dominated pastures, tame pastures that are pretty, have been pretty functional over the last 25 years. Uh, several years back, uh, I decided, well, let's just, I wonder what the cows would do on that on the winter. So we had two 20 acre paddocks that were 
that were stockpiled to some degree. Let's right beside the native grass. And we run our cows on our native grass after weaning. So November, December, January is when we use our native grass and we can hammer it down, take 80%. And because it's had a whole year's rest and it's gonna get the whole spring and summer to recover, we've actually increased the productivity of our native grass by doing that. But this, this uh, tame pasture right beside it well, uh, opened the gate and the, and the cows went right after it. They loved it. So palatability and biofeedback wise, it was a win. But that grass struggled the next year to get going. And, and so by, as Grant talked about, you take all that leaf off of there, especially late in the season or in the winter season like that, it really kneecapped those pastures the next year. So um, that that was a lesson learned. We don't do, we haven't done that since. Um, try and make sure that those plants have some leaf material on them going into the winter and and not not go take what could be easy feed would help out the winter situation, but really gonna really going to hamper the go forward recovery uh, and you'll pay for it. Uh, it took a couple years for those pastures to try and get back up to speed and back in the game. So that was, that was my experience. That's really interesting, Doug, because I'm just thinking it's not the, the same situation, but we have a newer hay stand that we kind of tried something new with and we fed on it later in the winter and I, I can't say for sure this is why but it's doing pretty good um but i i'm curious i'm gonna see how that goes with what you've said because there's some like you know some similarity there but that's well, definitely something to learn from keyword newer um Four that, that yeah. newer end will be much more resilient than the, the one that's 20 years old or whatever. So, Is that how, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, the other grant, uh, Tamara, I think if he's still on the line, would like to say something. Let her up. You can say whatever you want, other grant, because nobody will know if you don't want to take ownership. <laughs> Or maybe you can't. Um, uh, there are so many of these off-cap programs with looking at higher legume pastures. And there's no doubt that that side of it is an opportunity for biodiversity in, those, in the situation. And legumes are really good drought avoiders. Um, as Dr. Mike Schellenberg from Swift Current, now retired, would say, they, they hydraulic lift. And so they will lift moisture up into the uh, rhizosphere closer to the surface during the heat of the day and release it back into the latter part of the uh, night and such for the grasses to take too. And so that is one of the things I think that having that biodiversity and the drought avoidance of some of those legumes, that is their opportunity to continue to grow when the shallower rooted plants um, run out of water 
but they themselves can still access this deeper in the horizon. And we also know from the soil's work that um, uh, arbor mycorrhizal fungi, when we've got a very healthy pasture stand, range stand, rangeland, um, can go into the smallest pores and pull out moisture, albeit really dry out the soil, I guess you'd say, but it will do that back for the plants in exchange for carbohydrates. So um, uh, we can avoid droughts to degrees um, but we still, the comment, we need water. Yes, we absolutely do. But there is unfortunately many cases where we need vigorous plants, healthy plants, biodiverse plant stands to function. And they themselves are really resilient in being drought avoiders. So all of our land can't be like that probably, but I've got some that is and a lot that isn't. So uh, other grant, now he's come back with his own name. So I don't know if you want to say anything. I'm not sure if he's having difficulty with unmuting, but <laughs> maybe he's shy. No, he's not shy. Uh, no, Tamara, you know that. You can't yeah. give him credit for being shy. Amanda, can you unmute him on your end? Uh, I'm asking Graham to unmute, but I'm not seeing him unmute himself, so I'm not sure. All I, all I can do is ask. Well, while Graham's working on that, I think, I think Grant makes a good point, and I think one of the things that's always interested me uh, over the years is is how much can i grow per inch of rain and how can i get more productivity per inch and and when you start to think in those terms then soil health you know if it's if it's going to capture if it's going to rain hard i don't want water running off i want water running in um so uh, having a healthy soil where the water can infiltrate and you can capture it and keep it keep it in your soil bank uh, rather than running off in sheets and and uh, going down the stream um, would be would be one strategy but yeah what you know as a learning curve as a thing to focus on and think about how what would be the pathway to grow more per inch and especially with our perennial pastures, you know, the annual croppers have really got that one. Uh, I think that's where they've made their most progress in the last 15 years. Um, our neighbors have all added more bins on the same acres because they're growing more tons of crop per inch of rain. And they're doing it by keeping, you know, cover on the soil, not uh, tilling direct seeding um, with excellent equipment that puts that seed right where they want it, those kind of things. They're getting more, more crop per inch of rain. And, and I think that's a challenge for us in the grazing industry is to think in those terms and, and try and find those pathways. 
Graham, do you want to speak? Or if you can't, I now have read your text so I can share what you're saying. Go ahead, Grant. He says he can't unmute, so go okay. ahead. All right. Um, when it comes right down to it, I think what Graham's point is, he said, you know, is that we have to plan for a drought every year and knowing it's around the corner. And with that in mind, whoops, sorry. With that in mind, it means that the legumes that are part of a stand are pretty crucial. And certainly looking around uh, highways and Graham drives a lot, as you know, and it's amazing at what you'll see the different legumes and the different ditches along the highways to help you decide which legumes might be ones for you um, and where they can fit in. And with varied landscapes, maybe it's several uh, in different places. Um, so when it comes right down to it, the fact is taking control back by having the plants in the pasture you want and managing for when you're concerned where you might not have so that you're going to have. And that's something I think that you share, Doug shared, and uh, Kelly and Glenn have shared, is the fact that we're managing stands um, for the future in a way in which they're very resilient and able to mitigate drought to degrees and keep you in control as Linda was talking to you about planning and, and feeling like you are in control of the situation. That is the reason I started grazing when I did. I knew I had bale graze ground. I knew I had high legume pasture ground. I knew I had pastures that will come back fast and hard if the rain comes. And so I, at the same time, it's surprising what fertility can do because even last year with bale graze ground, we grazed it three times and, or four times in the very end. And I'm shocked at what fertility can do for landscape um, on, on land, yes. Grant, I think you did a awesome job of summarizing that there. And um, two things that popped into my head, uh, when I used to work in Saskatchewan, one of the guys that had cattle in the pasture, they had a really bad drought year. And he electric fenced along the road and all the cropland because there was little sloughs everywhere. And he got his whole herd through by doing that. I mean, he fenced like 20 miles, like we're talking a big area. But to come back to what quite a few of you have said is to have that relationship in place and to think outside the box. And he, he managed to get his herd through. He said it took him a little bit to gather it all back up again, but he got it through. Um, and I also, when you were saying how you were shocked with the bale grazing, the, the piece of land that we calve on and get, it gets beat up, it always amazes me. Like I drove through it today and it just amazes me, the growth that comes out of that from the trampling and the feeding and just the cow. And it, it really is, like you said, it's, it's quite surprising. So um, we definitely have some tools that we can use. Um, I, if anybody has any other questions, just throw them up there. But uh, it is 8.20, so I think I'll start wrapping it up. And I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone that spoke tonight, because I, I think there's so much power 
in being able to sit down and talk to each other and get some tools and get some get your glass half full again as Doug said and just focus on the positive because I really do think we can get through this so um, if there's no other questions or any other points can't believe Graham's not going to say anything <laughs> um, can I just say something Tamara of course um, Tamara thank you very much for um, not only organizing it, but taking the lead and uh, uh, making sure that everything goes well. Um, and I think it was a very important topic at the and then right time at the right time. So I think uh, if uh, other uh, participants also feel that there are some other topics they would like to have in this series of uh, webinars, please let us know we will definitely try to accommodate them. Thanks again, Tamara, and all the other speakers. Oh, Graham says he's adding comments in the chat box. Okay. Uh, is anybody seeing his comment? They're not showing up on mine yet, but- uh, uh, Yeah, I, uh, from Graham, it says in good years, plant more legumes into your pasture, stands in help drought-proof your land. Excellent. And Suri, I, speaking of legumes, I noticed the sandfoin um, along my one neighbor's ditch is taking a hold and doing quite well this year. So when he's not looking, I might have to go over there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I remember, uh, Graham, you said to look when you're driving by, and I noticed that. So there's something Sand to point is supposed to be a little more drought tolerant than other legumes. Well, in, in this one area, it is doing very well over the past couple of years. It has come down the hillside across the highway and now it's coming down the other highway. So I think it would do well here. Um, but um, yes, if anybody has any other ideas for topics, we can you can reach out to the AFIN email that you would have got and send them our way. Or if you need to get a hold of anybody through that you heard tonight, by all means, please reach out. That was the whole point of this was to build some networks. And uh, if anybody has anything else to say, feel free to pop in. Maybe we should mention uh, the meeting tomorrow night in Olds. Yes, I believe. Mention it, Doug. Tomorrow night at uh, seven o'clock in Olds College, at Olds College, we have a, a meeting to talk about the uh, Alberta Forge strategy that a Finn has put together. And uh, I'd encourage anyone uh, within reach of Olds. Um, tomorrow to, to show up at that meeting. I think we've got a pretty robust group of diverse um, people in the forage industry gonna show up there. So hopefully it's a, it's a great conversation about uh, a pathway to, uh, to come up with a, with a cohesive forage strategy in Alberta that will, that will inform and drive the research we really need across the whole spectrum of of the industry and uh, and uh, 
provide some uh, some more capacity, hopefully, and uh, energy into uh, forage research so that we can uh, have some way of, of at least trying to keep up with what's happening in the annual crop world, which is our main the main competition for uh, the land base. And, and uh, so if, if, if we can't, we need research to allow us to to be more productive on the landscape with forages so in, in all their in all their forms and all their uses so that'll be that discussion tomorrow night Knowles and I encourage anybody and everybody interested to to come on out and have their input well said Doug well said thanks Doug and thank you Amanda for getting everything organized and keeping us on track and making sure the technology works because I'm not good with that. So I really, really appreciate that. So thank you. And thank you, Tamara. You did an excellent job hosting us tonight. I appreciate it. Well, yeah. I hope, hope everyone gets some really good rain and I hope that everybody has a bunch of notes that they can look back on and please feel free to watch the recording. Um, it will be sent out and I think with that, I will say good night to everybody. And thank you again for everybody that attended and that spoke and that watches the recording. I hope it adds value to you. Thanks, Amanda, or okay. and Tamara. Great job. Thank you Thanks. both. Yes, we count on you all the time. And Tamara, really appreciate it. Well said. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Good night. Good night. The Sustainable Forages webinar and podcast is a series of informative and engaging conversations about sustainable forage production and management practices. Each episode features experts and innovators in the field discussing a range of topics, including soil health, grazing management, and the latest research on forage crops. Whether you're a farmer, rancher, or just interested in sustainable agriculture, this series is a valuable resource for anyone looking to learn more about the importance of forages in a sustainable food system.